failure of drug war is glaringly obvious to judges, cops, wardens, prosecutors, and millions more now calling for decriminalization, legalization, the end of prohibition. Let us investigate the century of lies. Hello, my friends. Welcome to this edition of Century of Lies. On this edition, we hear numerous voices from the 2007 National Organization for the Reform of Marijuana Laws Conference held in Los Angeles, California. The featured speaker at this year's conference, Rick Steves, the noted travel writer, whose television programs are seen quite frequently on PBS stations. We're kind of considering uh, drug policy on marijuana like, uh, I think, the equivalent of the prohibition against alcohol back in the 1930s. Now, I'm a member of Law Enforcement Against Prohibition. We're a group of about 9,500 members worldwide who have come to the similar conclusion this drug war is bass-ackwards, counterproductive. It's just not doing what it was intended to do. And we're trying to end prohibition itself. I uh, heard during your speech today at the normal conference, you talked about LEAP. You mentioned them. You talked about certain uh, uh, nations, uh, police forces, kind of taking a new look at this, a nuanced approach. You want to talk about that? Law enforcement wants to help reduce the harm that drug abuse causes a society. I mean, I I would imagine that motivates a a policeman. They care. And there are... um, there is harm caused by a society by drug abuse. And I would think it's demoralizing for a policeman who wants to contribute in this area to have to do something that he doesn't believe in. And I think uh, a lot of police officers don't believe that the responsible adult use of marijuana is causing harm to anybody. And uh, I, I just think it's if you, if you get that out of the way, then police officers are, are free to really tackle the serious problem and make a difference. I would feel better if I was a policeman knowing that I could actually help a society rather than uh, criminalize uh, people that are just exercising what I think is a civil liberty. Yeah, my, my thought on that is to judge people by their actions, not the contents. Their yeah, pocket. and I mean, no, nobody's saying drug use is good. Nobody's saying uh, kids should smoke pot. Uh, all we're saying is um, let's, let's consider the problem a health issue rather than a criminal issue. Let's be pragmatic about it. Let's learn from Europe, from their track record of not arresting po- adult pot smokers, that it is uh, uh, a constructive way to deal with this problem. And what's a curious thing to me is, uh, in Europe, law enforcement people who are not retired can say this makes sense. Here in America, I would think most uh, members of uh, LEAP, Law Enforcement Against Prohibition, are retired uh, law enforcement officers. Exactly. We've had a few, <laughs> a, a working Texas warden actually spoke is that right? a few years back. But, I, I mean, that's a sad, sad situation when you can't speak the truth until you're retired. Exactly. Now, you, you also had a phrase uh, uh, that caught my attention uh, dealing with the fact that, uh, you, as you stated, you're a child-rearing, church-going pot smoker. Uh, we're not the ones kicking in doors, destroying people's lives and futures. And um, I think it's time to claim the moral high ground. Your thoughts? Well, yeah. First of all, you can't legislate morality. So I don't think the, I don't think the morality of it is an issue. I mean, you can't, you can't lock up people for, for watching Playboy, I don't think. And you could say that's moral or immoral. You know, it's the same thing. You, you can't lock up people for being obese. I mean, some people can say that's, that's not good. Uh, I think um, that the morality issue is not that big of a deal. On the other hand, I, I guess I just don't care about the morality issue of it. I, I don't see any incongruity at all. If I'm, if I'm going to uh, uh, enjoy relaxing with a joint and going to church the next morning, um, going to work, uh, paying my taxes, whatever, I, I, don't, 
I just don't see the connection. Um, the the real bottom line is: Am I hurting anybody? Am I am I uh, am I drinking while impaired? I mean, throw the book at them. I, I don't know. I wouldn't give those people a, 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 any sort of slack. I'm talking about people who want to listen to the Beatles and uh, actually hear everything that's in there. I mean, there's something to that. That's a beautiful thing. I'm yeah. talking about people who can enjoy a little nuance in what they're eating because they just uh, have a, enjoyed a, a little bit of marijuana. How can that be evil? Um, it's just not. So that's not a moral issue, and uh, neither is drinking alcohol. I mean, a lot of people think it's very strange to, for people to go to church, and then in Europe, people go to church, and then afterwards they walk across the square and they go to the tavern, or the taverna, and they all uh, have their uh, family get together there and enjoy some wine. And a lot of Americans go, look at that, they went to church, and then they went over and had a glass of wine. I mean, come on, that's, that's not a problem at all. Uh, it's this, and I, I took my pastor for a walk, and I explained to him why I'm in this crusade to uh, end the prohibition on marijuana. My pastor respects me for it. Now, my pastor can't stand up in the, in the pulpit and advocate for normal. Uh, I wouldn't expect him to. But uh, I just think it's a shame that a lot of people who understand the wisdom of the struggle that normal is waging, they can't talk about it with their friends at church because so many people, so many Christians are so judgmental. Uh, so I, I think that those who are able to speak out, it's a, it's a beautiful thing for them to, to uh, uh, take advantage of that opportunity for them to use that platform and share with people what, what they think is the truth. We're here at the 2007 Normal Conference. I'm with Mr. Doug McVeigh. He's the editor of Drug War Facts. He works for Common Sense for Drug Policy. And I guess what I'd like to know from you, Doug, is what is common sense in regards to marijuana? Common sense drug policy uh, really means having drug policies that are reasonable, that are fair, and that make sense given what we know about the relative dangers both to the individual and to society from the use of those drugs. Now, many have argued that though alcohol and tobacco are quite dangerous, in fact, the two most dangerous social drugs that we have, that those should be prohibited. However, there is a very long history of use, and there's been a great deal of difficulty when we've tried prohibiting those substances, and frankly, it's much more trouble than it was ever possibly worth. Um, it also costs a lot in crime and corruption. Well, marijuana is similarly very widely used, probably about 25 million regular marijuana users. There are some 54 or so million regular tobacco users. So many, many millions of people who are regular consumers in spite of its illegality, and most of the time with no ill consequences. Uh, there are some physical health dangers, but quite reasonable given the kinds of risks that we accept from other things every day. It's that notion of law not existing in a vacuum, that it should, sure, be possible to think of a drug individually, look at its specific effects. We must, but we then have to weigh our response to that drug compared to how we respond to all these other substances. Again, alcohol and tobacco are much more dangerous than marijuana, therefore should not be any more toughly regulated than those two drugs. We have with us Mr. Jeff Jones, who has a observed the history of the medical marijuana movement, particularly in the state of California, city of Oakland, and now into Los Angeles, as I understand. Jeff, uh, tell us about that history. What has changed over these last 10 or 12 years? 
Well, I think that the, the first thing is that we clearly passed a law that uh, created change in California that has now uh, evolved into a, a, na a nationwide movement of patients, caregivers, and collective friends and support that is rapidly putting pressure on the federal government to change the policy that has been in effect since Richard Nixon that has criminalized an otherwise non-criminal act of a patient following their doctor's right to use this medicine. Here in California, local governments are regulating it, moving forward, putting together safe use policies for their own local communities that differ upon their own local needs. And the federal government is continuing to arbitrarily go in and raid uh, collectives that are otherwise locally supported and regulated and are paying taxes and otherwise generating good infrastructure for California when otherwise the federal government is just ignorantly ignoring all the benefits that this issue brings to the floor wall, continuing to spout the lies that it's generated out of uh, facts that they can't substantiate. Now, last night I got the chance to uh, observe the DEA in action. They uh, kicked in the door, assault rifles, took the marijuana and the cash, and fled with the police support. What is going on here? What is going on? Well, we've, we've likened it in California for some number of years because we've clearly identified a state and federal conflict. Where locally we have support and in some ways we have complete compliance with local police and communities where the feds have come in, Gestapo, and taken medicine under badged sense. And we've likened a badge robbery. Where they have badges, they take what they want. They don't necessarily charge those that are involved. But if you ask for your medicine back, they simply charge you and say that you've committed this heinous crime that's committing, uh, you know, a blight to the community. And I think that in some ways it goes against what the electorate passed in 1996 because it said that the state should, should in some way ensure that there's a safe and affordable supply. Currently in California, the state has been vacant on that issue and has left it up for the patients and the collective gardeners that have been the ones that got this law passed in the first place to really cause the solution to become evolved. It really goes back to what, what happened in 1970 with Richard Nixon placing this medicine in a Schedule One status uh, through the CSA. When they did that, it created a, a criminal status that it, it makes it and circumvents a lot of the arguments. And since that point, the federal government has used the argument, as long as we're talking in the criminal context of debate, it doesn't matter what we say, it's fine. But they won't allow us to talk outside of that, that realm. And currently in California, that realm has been left 10 years ago or, or more by the wayside, and it's not currently uh, policy, and that's where I think our friction is currently triggering their reaction that is, in some ways, likening us to creating a permissive attitude towards something that they've had zero tolerance of. And like it or not, it's here to stay, and they're going to have a hard time taking something back now in California that people don't see as a privilege, but more as a right. And it's been triggered over, over the realm of the last 10 years because it first was a privilege in California to have this use of, of medical cannabis. But now it is being more looked at as a right, that these people that have had set up with their doctors years ago the right to use this are not, I think, not sitting by wayside and letting the feds come in and take it away from them. In different counties across the, the state, we have tolerances as much as 25 plants in each patient or adult garden. And I think that says a lot towards what the locals are saying about this compared to what the feds say, that this is a dangerous drug and liken this to a lot of the other things that have caused problems in our community that they relate to the drug policy. And I think that this is a stepping stone to further sanity when it comes to whether or not we take the, the, the step forward with a rational way of dealing with drug policy versus the way that they've been, I think, allowed to deal with us. Because we're, we're not causing problems, we're trying to create solutions, and they're getting away with painting us as the problem in our society when we're not.
And our local governments are, are, I think, proof in that. Next up, we hear from not the competitor, but the ally of normal, from Mr. Rob Campia, director of the Marijuana Policy Project. We're looking at doing four ballot initiatives in the next year or two. Um, the first would be a, a medical marijuana initiative that we're going to be putting on the ballot in Michigan, and that'll be for November of 2008. And that's sort of a standard medical marijuana initiative that's similar to the laws that currently exist in Rhode Island and Montana and states like that. Uh, the polling is 60% for that initiative, so we're expecting to pass it unless there's some weird controversy. Second initiative is in Arizona. We're going to be putting uh, a medical marijuana initiative with dispensaries on the ballot in Arizona for November of uh, 2008 also. And the polling for that is at about 72%. Uh, so we're looking to pass that unless something really horrible happens. Uh, the third is a medical marijuana improvement initiative in Maine. Uh, Maine has had a medical marijuana law since 1999, but it's mostly dysfunctional. A lot of people in Maine don't even know the law exists. The state doesn't issue ID cards for patients, so the police don't really know who's legitimate and who isn't. So what we're going to do is put the ID cards into the law, and then we're also going to um, legalize dispensaries in Maine, which has huge support, according to our polling. And then the fourth ballot initiative, which will be on the ballot also in November of 2008, is a marijuana decriminalization initiative in Massachusetts, where we're going to be doing away with all penalties um, and doing away with the threat of arrest and prison, and there's going to be no need for a lawyer or uh, to go to court. And if you're caught with under an ounce of marijuana, you'll be issued a $100 ticket, just like a speeding ticket that you can pay through the mail. And also in that initiative, we're going to be doing away with all the collateral sanctions that currently exist. You, you won't have a criminal record. You won't uh, have your driver's license suspended. You won't have your license to practice law or medicine suspended. You won't have your children taken away. You won't have your guns taken away, etc. So we're doing away literally with all the penalties and collateral sanctions except for a $100 ticket. And that polling in Massachusetts shows that it has 61% support. So it's going to be a bloodbath because the government's going to come out hard on that. Because um, if we pass that initiative, it'll be the best marijuana law in the country. We have with us Mr. Steve Dillon, uh, the chairman, if I'm uh, right, of this national organization for the reform of marijuana law. My thoughts are that uh, faith without uh, action doesn't get you anywhere. And uh, uh, like Eleanor Roosevelt said, if you uh, believe in peace, is good. If you think about peace, is fine. But unless you work for it, it doesn't get you anywhere. Uh, the same thing Simon Wiesenthal said about liberty. You know, you can't take it for granted. If you want freedom, it's not a gift from God. you got to work for it every day, and I believe that. So uh, I think many people in this country, millions actually, many more millions than they, than they acknowledge, uh, believe that marijuana ought to be legal and marijuana patients should be left alone and that these laws are counterproductive and they shouldn't waste their money on it. However, uh, they think someone else should be active, somebody else should take a role. Somebody else should be the one to finance it. Somebody else should be the one to run for office. Some, somebody else should put their name in the paper in a letter to the editor. Someone else should call in on the talk show. But, you know, they got to realize that it's really them all along, and it's their freedoms that are at stake. If, if we trust someone else to guard our freedoms, we're going to lose them. So I'm encouraging people to stand up for their God-given and, and unalienable, inalienable rights uh, to freedom and liberty and the right to choose what to do with their own body and their own uh, choice of conscience, uh, their choice of religion, uh, their choice of association, all these cherished First Amendment rights that are in jeopardy today in America. 
and we can't wait any longer. This last administration has shown us how we can even arrest more citizens, 830,000 last year in this country, of which 89% were for possession only of a small amount, clearly not dealing with any real efforts to effectively control marijuana, but just to keep us in fear, waste tens of billions of dollars. It's a control thing. It's a racist thing. It's an immoral thing that must end, and it's time. You know, I don't believe the federal government has the power to enforce state marijuana laws. I believe that the federal government got the power to try to regulate marijuana in the state level by passing a constitutional amendment, giving the federal government power to regulate that alcohol, but they haven't done it with marijuana. I don't think the federal government has any constitutional right to interfere with the dispensaries here or anywhere else. I believe that it's nothing more than domestic terrorism. It's counterproductive. They know it's a ruse. It's a political statement to threaten the owners of the property with forfeiture of their property selectively from marijuana dispensaries, violates equal protection of the law, due process of the law, in addition to probably First Amendment issues and Fourth Amendment issues on search and freedom of expression and association. So I don't think there's any basis at all for this federal government to even try to regulate cannabis in California or elsewhere, and I think they're doing it in an unconstitutional manner, and it's nothing more than domestic terrorism. That's what I think it is. All right, and next up we hear from Dr. Mitch Earlywine. I'm Associate Professor of Psychology at the University of Albany, and I'm the author of Understanding Marijuana and the editor of the book Pot Politics. And, Mitch, there's just so much evidence coming forward. The government keeps denying that there's any scientific or medical reasons that marijuana should be used, but it's everywhere now, is it not? In fact, the prevalence of medical use is impossible to estimate because people are afraid to mention that that's what they're doing. And we've seen, you know, basically a third of all adults tried marijuana at one time or another here in the U.S. Obviously, this isn't the danger we thought it was, or we'd have a lot more negative consequences than we do, and I think that's the word we've been trying to spread at the conference. The nation of Canada has now tried to embrace the U.S. policy of drug war to lock up people who are selling these drugs for longer and longer periods of time. Is this drug war contagious? What's going on worldwide? It's a scary thought, and, in fact, I was disappointed to hear about some of the recent decisions in Canada because, as we've seen over in Europe time and again, increasing punishment is not the way to decrease drug-related problems. Instead, as our brothers overseas have shown time and again, making harm reduction approaches more accessible, giving folks the opportunity to get treatment instead of incarceration, and just generally having a better attitude, making this a health problem rather than a legal problem, has really paid off in so many other countries. I wish that the U.S. and really all of North America could take a comparable approach. This part's so good that when I smoke it, the government freaks out. are listening to a special edition of Century of Lies. We're focusing on the recent 
conference held in Los Angeles for the National Organization for the Reform of Marijuana Laws, N-O-R-M-L dot O-R-G. Before we get back to the Voices of Reason, I just wanted to give you my perspectives of what I saw in Los Angeles. Smoking marijuana is legal in front of the hotels, walking on the sidewalk. In fact, any public place where smoking is allowed. The number of clubs is some two to three hundred, and it's climbing all the time. They are accepted by the community. It is only the federal government that has a burr in their saddle. My medical marijuana doctor, Dr. Tom O'Connell, has had a publication accepted in a peer-reviewed journal about his findings on medical marijuana patients. They had also tried pot earlier and become buyers earlier at an earlier age. So it was this interplay of the drugs they had tried and the way they used drugs that really became the story. So to put it as succinctly as possible, what I discovered was that people who become career pot smokers have uh, almost inevitably have a history of having tried alcohol, tobacco, pot, and then several other drugs. So I began wondering why. And that's when I started asking about families. And it quickly became clear that many of them, if not the majority, had had easily identifiable dysfunctional relationships with their biological father. Didn't mean the father was a bad guy, it just meant he wasn't there frequently. Or he wasn't tuned in to what the kid wanted, which was a devoted father who was also a hero. Tall order, tall order for most fathers to fill because they're out trying to provide for their family when children are at the vulnerable age, which seems to be five, six, seven, somewhere roughly between four and ten. And kids, what, what seems to be produced by a father who is not ideal in the, in the eyes of the child is a kid who's insecure. He's not sure of himself. There's a lot of collateral evidence for that in their in-school behavior, typically ADD behavior. What I now know is that ADD is a pediatric anxiety syndrome, and it's terribly misnamed. They're not deficient. They're very, they're hyper-aware. They notice everything. That's why they drive their teachers crazy, because they're a half-step or a step ahead of the teacher and they're always flitting to the next stimulus. But what I also learned from talking to the young men who were in their 20s when I was interviewing them, who had been treated with Ritalin or evaluated for ADD, that their anxiety when they're adults seems to be about having too much to do. They, want to, they, they become runaway multitaskers. They want to do everything at once. They get frustrated, they get impatient, they mix up parts of projects. And what a couple of tokes do in the morning with their coffee, often, 
it relieves their anxiety about having too much to do to the point where they can actually prioritize. They look at what they have to do and they figure it out. And they make a list, either in their head or on paper. Do this now, that can wait until after lunch, and this goes next week. So they become much more efficient with three tokes. And they're medicated for all of about an hour because that's how long inhaled pot lasts. Now, eating pot, on the other hand, is a totally different experience. You have no feedback. You've got to wait for digestion. You're not sure what the, especially when you buy it in the club, you're not sure what the cook or the baker put in that brownie or that piece of cake. And what happens is that it's digested and the portal circulation, which picks up that pot from the gut, has to go through the liver. And some of that pot, not all of it, but some of it is processed by the liver and converted into a muscle relaxant with a five-hour duration of action. So that's the body high, which plants you on the couch for five hours. And if you weren't aware of that or didn't realize that that was a possibility, you might have been burned <laughs> badly if you had something you wanted to work on. Because I can assure you that if you're high on a brownie, you're not going to do much else except sit around until, until it's gone. So that the people I talk to who have tried brownies and had that experience, they either don't use edibles at all or they save them for the weekend when they know they have plenty of spare time. But we haven't studied edibles for their different the, the nuances are, it's more than a nuance. And they're like two different, two modes of ingestion, like two different drugs, certainly two different drug effects. Not well understood at this point. Needs research, like a lot of cannabinoid pharmacology, because this is very complica complicated stuff. Pot affects so many different parameters, physical and emotional. But the main hook that got most of its chronic users using it on a regular basis was its ability to relieve teenage angst, which is often related to uh, suboptimal upbringing. Okay, I'm Matthew Robinson, Associate Professor of Criminal Justice at Appalachian State University in North Carolina, and I'm the co-author of a new book called Lies, Damn Lies, and Drug War Statistics. It's a, an assessment of claims made by the Federal Agency of Accountability in the Drug War, the Office of National Drug Control Policy, to see if they uh, pr accurately and honestly present statistics uh, with regard to the drug war. Like, it, like with so many other social issues, not hell of a lot gets done. People know the truth. They fail to act. They fail to mm -hmm. change the policy. Right. Um, in examining all these stats, isn't there sufficient reason to perhaps get involved? Yes, clearly. There's, um, there's clear evidence of manipulation of information on the part of the, the White House agency that fights the drug war, the, the Office of National Drug Control Policy. There's uh, clearly enough evidence from researchers, researchers who have kind of a liberal slant and researchers that have more of a conservative slant, um, libertarian researchers. Uh, think tanks on all sides have done research on the drug war, so there's clearly enough evidence of what's going on in the drug war. And people know the realities. It's, it's been a massive failure um, consistently since its inception, and yes, there's there's ample reason to get involved, absolutely. The evening of the day I arrived in Los Angeles, the DEA chose to bust a dispensary near downtown Los Angeles. I was there with video cameras and microphones. 
I'm producing a video documentary in that regard, and this week's cultural baggage will focus on those raids of the California dispensaries. In closing, we're going to hear from Rebecca Saltzman, who's chief of staff of the Americans for Safe Access organization, who rally and protest while the DEA is stealing the marijuana and the money. Americans for Safe Access is now about five and a half years old, and we are working for towards legal medical marijuana therapeutics and research, both on the federal level and in several states. Um, and what's frustrating here in Los Angeles is the city is working with the dispensaries. The city wants the dispensaries here. The community wants the dispensaries here. But the DEA keeps coming in and shutting people down, regardless of what the city and the state want. They're interfering with state laws, and we have it under control here. They don't need to be here. These folks in California are patriots. And as always, I remind you that there is no truth, justice, logic, scientific fact, or medical data. No reason for this drug war to exist. Please visit our website, endprohibition.org. Prohibido estoc Ivalesco. For the Drug Truth Network, this is Dean Becker asking you to examine our policy of drug prohibition, the century of lies. The show produced at the Pacifica Studios of KPFT, Houston.